If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 and verse 45. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to follow along in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And if you find that at home the Bible you're reading is a little hard to understand, or maybe you don't have a Bible at home, uh, you are more than welcome to take one of the Bibles from the pew racks. Uh, They are our gift to you. We don't want anybody to leave here today without access to God's Word and an accessible and readable translation. And so I invite you to consider that our gift to you. As you have uh, picked up from today's service so far, uh, the message today from Mark 6, 45 is of Jesus walking on the water. And I just want to say a word of thanks to those who have led us in worship in prayer, scripture reading, children's sermon, song selection. It really has kind of mounted and built up to this place where we are studying this text today so much that is relevant and helpful for us. And I really appreciate the thoughtfulness of each person that helps lead us. And so thank you uh, for that. I want to say that this text, among many others, but perhaps this one is one of the greatest, that can be a stumbling block for a modern thinker. In our world, we are filled and constantly bombarded with a naturalistic philosophy. Naturalism, that there's nothing aside from the things that exist. Material is all there is, and there is nothing above nature. Nothing supernatural. This is, of course, not new to 2021. For the last several hundred years, modern and liberal scholars have been trying to explain away supernatural events in Scripture. Those who would wish to have their cake and eat it too, so to speak, to be thought of well by the intellectuals of society and yet still be called a Christian. And in doing so, they have stripped the Bible of supernatural things that take place. They want to explain any supernatural event with only naturalistic explanations. And friends, that just doesn't work. As an example, and it really is silly, uh, there are those who would suggest that Jesus was probably walking on a submerged sandbank in the Sea of Galilee so that when the disciples saw him, they thought he was walking on water but he was actually just kind of traversing a sandbank in the middle of the sea. I think of that like going over to the Patuxent River by Solomon's Bridge. And you're out there at nighttime, and you think Jesus is walking, but he's really on point patience. You know that sandbar that juts out into the Patuxent? But imagine how absurd this is, because we know that the disciples were fishermen by trade, many of them. They had been on that sea of Galilee, certainly in the day, certainly at night. Listen, I guarantee you, if Mike and Bernie were out on their boat in the Patuxent River and they saw somebody at night, even without GPS and all that, they would know that someone was on Point Patient Sandbar, not walking on water in the middle of the Patuxent River. They would just know that, and they wouldn't be afraid to see somebody in a place where there had traditionally been a sandbar. Listen, make no mistake about this. This is a one-of-a-kind, genuine 
miracle. One-of-a-kind, genuine miracle. And call me simple-minded. But if you have faith to believe that God created the world, everything that exists, how hard would it be for him to walk on water? This account is a full-on display of Jesus' divine authority, his mastery over creation. He is super above natural nature. The book of Job describes God as the only one in Job chapter 9 and verse 8 who stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. This is God that is being spoken of. And attempting to explain away miracles on rationalistic grounds is impossible. Job 9 verse 10 says so. He does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. His ways are unsearchable. His wonders are unfathomable. And walking on water is unexplainable, unless you're talking about God himself. So buckle up, because once again, as we get another portrait of Jesus today, we get to see the glory of God. But in addition to this increasingly supernatural portrait of the character of Jesus, we will see the increasing inability of his disciples to understand it, to comprehend it. Verse 52 in particular, when we stand and read, I want you to see this ominous theme get introduced about how the disciples are slow to understand and comprehend who Jesus really is. So as we stand and read, keep your eye out for those two themes, supernatural power of Jesus and the incomprehension of the disciples. Let's stand in honor of the reading of God's word, beginning in Mark 6.45, and we will take this to the end of chapter 6. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars, because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea, and wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke with them and said, Have courage! It is I! Don't be afraid! Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded, because... They had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to shore at Gennesaret and anchored there. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. They throughout that region and began to carry the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. 
wherever he went, into villages, towns, or the country. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch just the end of his robe. And everyone who touched it was healed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Now, as I said in the introduction, there are two main themes running like train tracks through this text. One is the supernatural, miraculous Jesus who walks on water and at the end of this chapter in the summary is healing the sick wherever he goes. The other is the misunderstanding of the disciples about the nature of who Christ is. So as we break this passage down today, there are four points in the outline, and they sort of alternate between these two themes. The first and third points relate to the misunderstanding of the disciples. The second and fourth will be about the supernatural power of Jesus. So the first thing we see, if you are following along in the outline, is that Jesus dispersed the crowds. Jesus dispersed the crowds. I want to show you how this relates to the theme of the misunderstanding, perhaps, of the disciples. We're told that not long after the feeding of 5,000 men, remember that is specifically men, so there were more than 5,000 people, they were fed bread and fish, and there were 12 baskets of leftovers that were collected. And after that, in verse 45 of Mark 6, we read, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Now, that word made in verse 45, immediately he made his disciples. This is a forceful word. Jesus rushed the disciples away and he made them get into the boat and sent them along while he dispersed the crowd. Now, John's gospel, the parallel account, gives us a reason why the crowd was dispersed. It's because the crowd wanted to make him king. John chapter 6 and verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, that is the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So John gives an explanation. Jesus perceives that the crowd, the multitude, is going to take him by force, throw him on their shoulders and say, you're our king, let's go. Let's overthrow Rome. But Mark doesn't, he doesn't mention that explicitly, so I want to see if we can find this even in the context of this gospel. We do see throughout the book of Mark the three times Jesus withdraws to a solitary place for prayer are first after the excitement of all the Sabbath activity in Capernaum in chapter 1. There was a lot of hustle and bustle and excitement about this Jesus, and he withdraws to pray. The second in Mark's gospel is here after the feeding of the 5,000, and then the third time is at the Last Supper. Each time, I believe you could make an argument that Jesus was facing temptation. Temptation. 
the, the presence of Jesus in the wilderness and this deserted area, combined with the approval of the crowds, provoked a renewal of temptation requiring him to refuse the acclaim of the multitudes and get alone with the Father and affirm his obedience. Another commentator, he speculates that the response of the crowd was so strong that the disciples themselves were getting caught up in it too. Perhaps, he says, Jesus saw they were just as excited as the crowd, looking to him with the hope that he might be the one to drive the Romans out of the land. Now, before we start throwing stones at speculatory commentators, I think this accords very, very well with the fact that they did not understand the miracle of the loaves and the way that Jesus had to rebuke even Peter after his confession in chapter 8, that Peter wasn't seeking the things of God, but the things of man. They were concerned with man-made interests in Jesus as Messiah. So while Mark does not say it as directly as John does, I think we have every reason to believe that Jesus dispersed the crowd including making his disciples go across the sea, get away from this place. This is not the type of a claim I want. Go away and avoid having them take him by force and make him king. But this is where the story gets really exciting. Because not long after we read about Jesus dispersing the crowds and retreating to the mountain to pray, we see that Jesus displayed his glory. Jesus displayed his glory. I want us to reread verses 47 through 50 and see how the language that Mark uses is one that describes a theophany, which is a fancy way of saying Jesus was intending to show the disciples he is God, visibly displaying God to them. Verse 47 Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea, and, listen, wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke with them and said, Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, since Mark records that Jesus was coming toward them, because he saw them struggling, right? They're straining at the oars, going against the wind. It's a bit of a jolt to read that then Jesus wanted to pass by them. He desired to pass by them. Once again, we find ourselves in a place where our knowledge of the Old Testament is so crucial to a greater depth of understanding the New Testament. We'll also see how our study of the book of Exodus has been and will continue to be foundational to our study of the Gospel of Mark and any time we study the New Testament. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses asked God to show him His glory. And do you remember how the Lord responds? 
Look with me on the screens at the text, verse 18 of Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory, listen, passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Do you hear how God intended to pass by Moses, the term being used three times? But this is not an isolated incident, an isolated use of this term pass by for God displaying his glory. In fact, also in 1 Kings, when Elijah is really frustrated, thinking he's the only guy left that is faithful to God, the only person in Israel who's following him, God tells him in 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 12, he said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. Elijah and Moses both saw a theophany. They saw Yahweh, the Lord, pass by. And our text says, Jesus wanted to. Jesus intended to pass by the disciples. He was displaying his glory, the glory of God to them in the middle of their distress. As I mentioned in the introduction, he was displaying it in such a way, he was doing what only God can do, tread on the waves. Unique in his personhood, one in his godness. Jesus is God, who alone can tread on the waves. Did you notice what he said to those fearful disciples? He cried out to them in verse 50, Take courage! It is I. And that phrase, it is I, in the Greek is ego eimi. It's the Greek translation of the name of Yahweh, revealed in Exodus 3, 14. I am, ego eimi, have courage, I am. Jesus displays his glory by passing by, using the divine name, And finally, when he gets into the boat, the winds cease. Jesus displayed his supernatural power and glory. But what we read in 
verse 51 and 52, is that in spite of all this, the disciples discerned not the miracle. The disciples discerned not the miracle. That is to say, they did not understand about the feeding of the 5,000. Look at verse 51 with me. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. It seems likely to me that there were literally 12 baskets full of loaves of bread and fish with the disciples on the boat. Think about it. Our society, we tend to be a little more wasteful with food and resources. But it was unlikely the disciples would have let 12 baskets full of leftovers go to waste. In fact, as I was studying for the feeding of the 5,000, one of the commentators pointed out that the 12 baskets may have been the baskets that were on the boat to begin with to catch fish in. Like, where do you procure 12 baskets? In the middle of the, the field, right? Here are the baskets full of fish and loaves, and it's quite possible that they loaded them up onto the boat to cross the sea immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. And here is Jesus approaching them in his glory. And Mark says they were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. The superabundance of Christ's miraculous power could have literally been staring them in the face. And yet they were surprised he was walking on the water. Those words completely astounded in verse 51 in the original language is more like they were very exceedingly astounded. They were really flabbergasted at what was going on, but they shouldn't have been. They had literally just seen Jesus doing something that only God could do. But their hearts were hard, and they did not discern that the miracle was displaying that Jesus is God. So once again, in Mark's gospel, we come across this theme of proximity to Jesus. Here are 12 men who had not only been close to Jesus, but had seen his miraculous power on display, and they did not comprehend about the loaves. William Lane writes in his commentary, The problem of understanding is not intellectual, but existential. It's a matter of faith. The disciples did understand Jesus' instructions. They did understand that the multitude had been fed. But their confused reaction to Jesus walking on the water shows they failed to recognize this was God in their midst. Their misunderstanding reflects unbelief. The disciples' reaction to Jesus' actions, as well as his teachings, throughout Mark's gospel, is characterized by not understanding. In tracing this lack of understanding to a hardness of heart, Mark indicates that at this stage in Jesus' ministry, the disciples are not essentially different from his opponents, who fail to recognize his unique character 
and continue to exhibit a hardness of heart. Another commentator adds this. He says, when people fail to understand the identity of Christ, it's not because they're unintelligent. It's because their hearts are hard, recalcitrant. Their hearts are made out of stone. For sin has caused calluses to grow on their hearts so that Christ himself could walk in front of them on the water. And they still would not believe. I'm reminded of the parable of rich man and Lazarus and rich man says, send somebody and says, nope, even if somebody rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe. Christians, brothers and sisters, this is why we pray. We pray every time we preach because we recognize It's not a matter of someone merely preaching the intellectually true gospel and a person taking two and two and making four. No. When the gospel is preached, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it will land on hard-hearted sinners. So we pray and we ask God to open eyes soften hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even when Peter eventually makes his confession at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says to him, as recorded in Matthew's gospel, that flesh and blood had not revealed the truth of who Christ is to him, but the Father who is in heaven. For us, this means, yes, the loaves are in the baskets, And Jesus is walking on the water, passing by. But apart from the Father revealing who Christ is to you, you also will not see Jesus for who he really is. So Christians, let's pray that the Father would draw hard-hearted sinners to repentance, even today. And every time the gospel is proclaimed. This leads us finally to the last three verses of this chapter where we see even more of the supernatural work of Jesus on display. So forth and finally, for your outlines, Jesus displaced the darkness. Jesus displaced the darkness. We read the summary account in verse 53 and following. When they had crossed over, they came to shore at Gennesaret and anchored there. And they got out of the boat. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. They hurried throughout that region and began to carry the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went, in the villages, towns, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch just the end of his robe. And everyone who touched it was healed. Power. It all fits. Thank you, Brother Allen. Power. This is the third uh, summary statement in Mark's gospel of Jesus' ministry. In it, Mark will highlight some of the key themes of Jesus' public ministry around the Sea of Galilee, including the fact he traveled by boat, his intense popularity, 
And yes, that he healed the sick. Mark tells us, wherever Jesus went, darkness was on the run. Wherever Jesus went, darkness was on the run. The kingdom of God was breaking in in glorious light and miraculous power. The one who had fed the multitudes and tread the waves also healed the sick and restored those who by faith would reach out and lay hold on him. But we must always remember, as one pastor has put it, the miracles are not the point, but the pointer. They point beyond themselves to something greater, someone greater, the identity of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. I so appreciate Pastor Allen sharing that. The miracles are not the point. They are the pointer. And we've seen Jesus in this text today. I have to tell you, this text struck me in a new and a fresh way as I studied it this last week. Verse 52 especially, considering this fact that Jesus had just fed the multitude and that it seems entirely plausible that the disciples had the loaves with them in the boat when Jesus appeared. It sticks out all the more that although Jesus was revealing himself in powerful ways, the disciples were not getting it. I'm still thinking about how perhaps Peter was sharing with Mark about this incident and said, you know, the loaves and the fish, it was so on the nose. Looking back on this incident, he's telling Mark, yeah, we were all afraid and we were terrified. When we realized it was Jesus, we were all amazed that he could walk on water, but we shouldn't have been. There were 12 baskets of bread sitting right there in front of us on the boat. We just didn't get it. We were hard-hearted. Could it be that there are some who are here today surrounded by baskets full of God's faithfulness and still lack eyes of faith to see who Jesus really is? Or maybe you have put your faith in Jesus, but you're struggling to believe he can come through in a new trial that you're experiencing. I want to remind you that there are people here today, baskets full of God's faithfulness, people who have been rescued from drug addiction. There are Christians who have experienced restoration in their marriages. There are believers who have experienced physical healing. And every believer here has been rescued from their slavery to sin. There's an abundant fountain of God's grace on display in baskets full of his faithfulness all around us today. The glory of Christ is put on display every Sunday when we open up the word of God and proclaim Christ crucified. And yet I wonder, could there be some here in the boat, so to speak, surrounded by these baskets of God's faithfulness with a front row seat to Jesus passing by and still not understanding. I want us to take heed today to the danger of hard-heartedness. 
It's so easy to look at the disciples and think, man, these guys were really slow on the uptick. But how often do we find ourselves facing a new trial and fail to remember the faithful God, the powerful, supernatural God who sustained us in the past. So let us pray for eyes of faith, softness of heart to the word of God and the work of God in our lives and in the lives of those who are around us today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this gospel account reminds us that even the disciples who were so close were missing it. They were missing it. And so, Lord, I pray for churchgoers. I pray for people who come to church every Sunday. I pray for students growing up in Christian homes. I pray for family of believers. Lord, we are here. And your glory is on display. And there's faithfulness on display all around us. Supernatural power to save. I pray that you would open eyes to see the glory of Christ. That he is God. And Lord, I pray that you would Help unbelievers here today see that Jesus is the only one who can save. By his death on the cross, in atoning sacrifice for sin, his shed blood, shed for the forgiveness of our sins. I pray that someone here today would have a soft heart, Lord, and would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive them, to rescue them from sin and darkness, deliver them into the kingdom of light, the physical healings, a sign of the type of spiritual healing and the future restoration of all things physical in this world, that there is hope for the hopeless. There is peace and forgiveness for any and all who will reach out in faith to this Jesus, to touch even the hem of his garment. Lord, may they catch a glimpse of his glory and lay hold of him today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it sustains us. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.